Be seated. We can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Hosea, chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this evening, uh, but I will read to verse 19 to set the context. Lack of knowledge, begin reading at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge... I also will reject you from being the priest for me, because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity, and it shall be, like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase." But they, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. They have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit adultery, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people do not understand who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives, for Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings. They shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our God, thank you that you teach us about the salvation that we have in Christ, but also about the seriousness of sin. We know that when Adam brought sin into this world, he brought sin and misery. He brought a curse into this world. And the creation groans. The creation feels. The creation uh, is uh, um, uh, uh, feeling that curse as well, O Lord. And we know that we still struggle with it. We still see it. We still see the decay that goes on in this world. And we know that our sin is lawlessness in its essence. And yet we still see the effect that it brings, how it is all encompassing, how it blinds and how it increases. 
And so we do ask for this world, that for Christ to come again to make his enemies his footstool. We do ask for Christ to come again to put an end to sin and misery and destruction. Thank that Christ has done this by his finished work, and thank that he shall complete it when he comes again. And so as we are pilgrims, as we are exiles, and as we await that time Christ comes again, help us to be on guard in our own hearts. Help us to know you. Help us to walk in your ways. Help us to know you by faith and to love the things of you. Help us to be on guard against our own sin. And help us to lament when we see much sin in this world, when we see much debauchery, when we see much lewdness and wickedness. Help us not to help us to be provoked by it. Help us to hate it and despise it. But help us to be humble. Help us to be ever on guard. Help us to be watchful uh, in our own ways as well. Help us to know the truth. Help us to be self-aware of our own issues and problems. And thank you that you do this by your spirit. So help us to be more aware by your spirit. Help us to please illumine our hearts by your spirit as we come and consider a difficult text once again. Thank you that you teach us. Thank you that you help us. Thank you that you speak to us. And we pray that you help us now by your spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when you enter into some sort of contract with someone, the hope is and the assumption is that each person will follow through on that agreement. But most of the time in this present world, that is not usually or always the case. And sometimes a legal reminder is needed. The offending party needs to remind uh, the offended party needs to remind the offending party of the covenant that they have made. And this is what Yahweh seems to be doing here in verses 1 through 10. He's reminding them of the covenant that he entered into with them and reminded them and reminding them that they have violated that very covenant relationship that God had entered into with them. And as we consider the timing of this prophecy, it's during the 8th century, during the time of the divided kingdom. Remember, there's Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And remember, there was nothing good in Israel. Yes, Elijah goes there. Yes, Elisha goes there. Yes, we find out there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But there was no good king in the history of that northern kingdom. They engage in much wickedness, much idolatry, and much spiritual harlotry. And remember, when we consider Hosea's marriage as he marries a wife of harlotry, as we saw last time in chapter 3, she engages in actual adultery. We see it as a picture of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, between God and the Old Covenant people. And now we transition to a new section. Certainly Hosea's uh, marriage is the message, uh, but we transition to a new section, uh, really chapter four to the end, but you could break it down as McKay does. Uh, Chapters four through six deals with waiting for repentance. We have these oracles of doom, but oracles of hope as well. God is uh, uh, bringing to bear the terms of that covenant against them. And if they don't do uh, what he says, then there's going to be destruction based upon the terms of this covenant. And so that's what we see uh, in these verses here. And the problem that we see is when Yahweh's covenant is rejected. 
And that manifests itself in Israel's lack of knowledge. They don't know because the truth has not been preserved. They should have kept it. The priest should have been teaching it. But other things have crept in. They have forgot the Lord God most high. If they don't receive it and believe it, they don't have it, but they also don't receive and believe what Yahweh had said in his word. And their lack of knowledge is then manifested in their behavior. It manifests in their conduct. It manifests in the life in which they live in the society as a whole under the old, uh, in the, 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 the country of Israel. And so when that covenant is breached, Yahweh comes and he brings that charge against the offending party. Some highlight it could be a possible covenant lawsuit. You see that a lot in the prophets. That is, God uh, brings, bear, brings to bear a lawsuit against the people of Israel. Perhaps we're not there just yet. It's a bit of a covenant reminder. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what the, uh, the covenant says. Uh, if you don't do what it says, uh, then this is going to happen. So he's reminding them here in verses 1 through 10. Here he's, the prophet is bringing a charge against Israel for their lack of knowledge. That's the main idea. A charge against Israel for their lack of knowledge, for the rejection of Yahweh of Israel. And we really do see what happens when one does not know God and does not obey the voice of the Lord God. And there are three things that we'll see in relation to this this evening. Those are my three points. When someone doesn't know God, we see unrestrained wickedness in verses 1 through 3. When someone does not know God, we see willful ignorance in verses 4 through 6. And when people or persons do not know God, we see increased sin, which is what we see in verses 7 through 10. So unrestrained wickedness, willful ignorance, and increased sin. Unrestrained wickedness, willful ignorance, and increased sin. Let's first look at unrestrained wickedness in verses 1 through 3. And so the Lord brings this charge in verse 1 against Old Covenant Israel. Now, again, remember the context. It is in relation to Hosea's marriage. We saw in chapter 2 how he brings to bear uh, the image of Hosea's marriage upon Israel. How Yahweh is not their husband. How Israel has gone after other lovers. Then we switch back to Hosea's marriage uh, in chapter 3. And we saw God's love, God's goodness, God's forbearance, God's salvation that he shall bring to an adulteress, his love for her and also redemption for her in chapter three. Now we transition again as Yahweh brings charge against the people of Israel once again. And so the parties involved are very clear. It is Yahweh and the inhabitants of the land. And so he says, hear the word of, that the Lord brings. Israel should have remembered the word of the Lord many times throughout their history. And they should have kept and understood the book of Deuteronomy. They should have remembered what Yahweh said. But instead of doing what Yahweh said, they went after the Baals. They went after other gods. And the things of God are then pushed to the side. The things of God are then pushed out of the way. And so God is coming to remind them based upon that book, based upon Deuteronomy, he's bringing a uh, bringing charge against them because of their violations of it. When God speaks, the people must listen. God spoke. God gave them that covenant. They violated it for years. And now God is bringing it to bear upon them again. So hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of 
the land. We saw in chapter 2, too, the husband is bringing a charge against, or he's telling the children to bring a charge against their mother, which we said the mother refers to Israel as a whole. The children refer to the individuals in Israel to remind the people that they must do what Yahweh has said. And so we see this bringing charges there in chapter 2, and it comes up again here in chapter 4, verse 1. But one thing that's interesting He says, for the Lord brings charge against the inhabitants of the land. It's between Yahweh and Israel, but he mentions the inhabitants of the land here. I think the reason he does that is to draw our attention to the Abrahamic promise, to the Abrahamic covenant. You see, Israel doesn't deserve anything, do they? They didn't deserve anything, do they? Because uh, there was nothing great or wonderful about them. Yahweh chose them. Yahweh set them apart. And Yahweh gave the land to them. Yahweh was gracious to them. Yahweh was kind to them. And he gave them this covenant grant. And the reason that is important is because Yahweh's goodness only magnifies Israel's sin. Yahweh had given them blessings. Yahweh had given them good things. Yahweh said, I will make you a kingdom of priests. I will make you a holy nation. And what do they do? They violate God's covenant. They go against God's goodness. And it really teaches us how wicked and egregious sin is, doesn't it? Even with Adam, later on in Hosea 6, 6, he's going to uh, make a connection between Adam's violation of the covenant in chapter 6, 7. But like men, or better, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. When Adam sinned, it was egregious because God made him and God made him a king. God made him a priest. God made him a prophet. God made him a gardener and said, here's a garden. You can eat from anything you want from this garden, just not that one tree. And yet what does Adam do? It shows how terrible and wicked sin is. You see, brethren, some sermons require different tones, don't they? Some sermons are about love and kindness, and I should smile more during those sermons, right? But some sermons are a bit more somber. Some sermons are a bit more sober. Some sermons are a bit more serious. And Hosea 4 is a little bit more serious because of the seriousness of sin, because of the wickedness of sin. And so when he mentions the inhabitants here, He's highlighting, here's the good things God has done for you. And yet, look what is going on in the land. And look at the charge he brings in chapter 4, verse 1, at the latter part of verse 1. There is no restraint. Wickedness is just abounding in and among the covenant people. And it starts with religion. It starts with God. Notice he says, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Threefold. No, no, no. There's none of these things that are there. And the idea of truth there is different perhaps than the way we use the idea of truth. The Hebrew word is the idea of faithfulness. That is dependableness, a trustworthiness, and a faithfulness to what, the truth of Yahweh. So truth is important, knowledge, understanding, but it's a faithfulness to that truth that is in view here. They have not been faithful to the covenant. They have not been faithful to God. They have gone after other gods, and that will then affect the rest of society because Israel is a theocracy. God is ruling them as a special people. So there is no truth. There's also no love. 
There's no mercy. There's no loving kindness. The hope is if our relationship with God is right, then hopefully we're loving towards other people. Isn't that the first and the, the, isn't that the sum of the commandments? Love the Lord your God and then love other people. Brethren, you can't love other people unless you love the Lord your God, right? If you don't have this right, how are you supposed to love other people in this present world in which we live? And Israel got this wrong and they're getting this wrong as well. Sin is all-encompassing, and so there's no consideration for the needy, no consideration for the poor. The wealthy and the rich are exploiting the poor. The wealthy and the rich are exploiting those who are in need. And even there, even we'll see, no one, uh, let no man contend. There's quarrelsomeness. They won't hear what Yahweh has to say. There is no pity and love in the land. And there is no knowledge in the land as well. There's only one true God, and they had entered into that old covenant with them, but Israel has rejected it. They don't read about him. They don't meditate on him. They don't pray to him, and they certainly don't contemplate him. They have gone away to other things. They've become mercenaries. And remember, probably still during this time, uh, Hosea was a, a prophet for a very long time. Hosea saw a lot. But this is probably still during the reign of Jeroboam II when this prophecy comes in. It's a time of prosperity. It's a time of economic growth, a time of economic goodness. Economic goodness does not mean Yahweh is happy with you because there is a lot of wickedness that is occurring in the land at this time. There's no truth. There's no mercy. There is no knowledge in the land. Now, one of the blessings and promises of the new covenant is what we saw this morning. We shall know God. What we saw in Jeremiah 31, it's a spirit wrought knowledge that God gives to us. It's an internal working. And we did see in chapter two, that is a promise of the new covenant as he's, there's a lot of messages of hope throughout Hosea. And he talks about how in verse 19, verse 19 and 20 of chapter two, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. In righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That is a promise of the new covenant. But the old covenant ways, the people are not doing that. You know, that teaches us the old covenant was never meant to be a means of salvation, right? The old covenant was all about life in the land. It's an external covenant. It's all about goodness and enjoying the blessings of the land. If you do what's right, you'll enjoy blessings. If you do what's wrong, you'll be kicked out of the land and you'll receive the cursings that God has promised. And so that's why even the old covenant saints, true believers in Christ, looking ahead to Christ to come, they're saved by virtue of the new covenant provisionally as they look ahead for the blood to the blessings that are found in the new. But under the old, they do not know God. There is no knowledge of God in the land. And notice how it manifests. It manifests in covenant violations, unrestrained covenant violations. Now, remember, Deuteronomy is that foundation. Deuteronomy is the foundation of the old covenant, and it's used by the prophets uh, as the law to indict the people of Israel, to bring charges against them. And notice how they're violating the Ten Commandments. Commandment 3 Commandment 9, Commandment 6, Commandment 8, Commandment 7 are all there. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, 
they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. McComsky says, the catalog of sins is imposing. Oath-taking was false and insincere. People made sworn oaths they did not intend to keep. The society was rampant, both killing and theft. Adultery was practiced extensively. Eruptions of violence took lives with startling frequency. And it's all unrestrained. Bloodshed upon bloodshed. Now, brethren, one of the assurances and promises of the new covenant, of the Noahic covenant, that covenant that God has made with all creation, is God is going to restrain. But sometimes he lets that restraint, grow, restraint go, doesn't he, as a form of judgment. See, brethren, I want to be careful about making observations and applying what we see with Israel as a theocracy to our modern times. However, one thing I can say, it's funny how you say I'm not going to do this, but then I sort of do that, but that's okay. One thing we can say is it is never good when things that were once private are now public in society. When people who did wicked things behind closed doors is now become public. That is not a good thing. That is a perhaps a sign of judgment and perhaps a sign of an end of the age. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that that's something that is to be we ought to be concerned about. And let's be honest, in our modern times, I mean nothing is new under the sun. All forms of debauchery are shoved down our throats. It's all out in the open. There is no restraint. There is no privacy. There is no uh, care and consideration. Bloodshed upon bloodshed, nobody's caring. Adultery, nobody's caring. Stealing, nobody's caring. That is a surefire sign to indicate uh, the, the, the growth and increase of unrestrained wickedness when God is not known. Now, God will punish this. And notice we see in verse 3, the land will waste away. Therefore, the land will mourn. Everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Sin affects everything. Not only will the people be removed, and they're going to be removed in AD or 722 BC by Assyria, but the land itself groans. The birds and the beasts and the fish, they feel and receive the effects of sin in this world. Perhaps there is an allusion back to creation in the fall, right? Perhaps there's an allusion back to the Noahic covenant. The extent of the decay extends to lesser beings of creation. It extends to all. Now, we, he's already used... The idea of the Noahic covenant describes something about the blessings of the new in chapter 2, verse 18. I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. When the blessings of the new covenant, there shall be great peace. There shall be blessedness. There shall be growth. There shall be life. In a place where there is no sin, there shall be no more decay for all. But under the old covenant and in this present evil age, there is only decay, isn't there? And that's what he's saying. And the curse that we saw with the flood as God destroyed all of life because of the wickedness of man and the wickedness of uh, and the, the, the effects of sin in creation. We see, too, here that Israel will be like that as well. The land will mourn. Everyone will be gone. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. They all shall be taken away. 
And what this teaches us is how all-encompassing sin's curse is. How all-encompassing sin is. We believe in the doctrine of total depravity, right? When we speak about humans, that means our whole being uh, is born in sin, body and soul. We are, doesn't mean we're the worst we could possibly be, but it means that we are sinful in our body and soul. But also we could say it is total and how it affects the whole world. There's a reason in Romans 8, 22, Paul speaks about how the creation groans. The creation longs for a new creation. He talks, Peter talks about how we don't look to this present world. We look to a new heavens and a new earth. If I must say, Romans 8 is one of the passages that reminds me I'm not a post-millennial. <laughs> Sorry to go there. I'm not a transformationalist. I don't believe that we're going to change societies because creation itself is longing for something greater. We ourselves are meant to look for something greater. We are called exiles in this land for a specific reason. I'm not saying you don't work hard in society. I'm not saying you don't write to your MPs about certain things. I'm not saying you don't vote. But the way in which the kingdom comes in is through the pre of God's word and when Christ comes again to usher in the new heavens and new earth and the creation itself the decay that Adam brought longs for that longs for that fullness longs for that new creation all of creation has been affected by Adam's sin and let's be honest isn't life full of hardship, dear brethren? I was thinking about this as the other day. Everything that we have to deal with in this present evil age, right? We have to deal with financial concerns, right? Whether it's our fault or government incompetence, right? We have concerns. We, have, uh, we are worried about inflation. Housing you know, for young people is just unattainable right now because of everything going on. I mean, housing or uh, food prices are going up and another carbon tax is coming in on July 1st. Sorry to get a little political, but it's just the realities that we deal with today. It is so much. So there's that. We have to deal with that. And then you just have to deal with government incompetence in general, right? I mean, not, you know, they're calling evil good and good evil. They're punishing the innocent and not punishing the guilty. And then that, you know, you're worried about all that and the encroachments of perhaps communistic ideas. So we have to deal with that. Then you have ide ideological things shoved down our throats, right? I mean, everything's coming from all sorts of sides. We have to deal all, with all those different things. It's being shoved down our throats by the government again. But then bring it close to home. Relational issues, right? Strife within families. That's because of sin. Stubbing our toes. Now that's a little one. You know, how, you know how I know we are sinful people? I love to be at a fly on the wall every time you stub your toe. Because I'm sure you scream out in pain and are like, why is this happening to me? It's another sign of the fall. Weeds are another sign of the fall. What about keeping marriages together? That's tough, isn't it? I mean, 50% of people divorce. I mean, there's sin. Sinners say I do. Raising children. I mean, little children are little sinners. I know they're cute and they're wonderful and they, you know, walking and they smile and they say dad, but then they have a tantrum. Brethren, this world is full of sin. This world is full of sorrow and sadness. It is all-encompassing, isn't it? Now, thanks be to God that he does restrain. There is that Noahic covenant, but sometimes God does lift that restraint, and those sins are more magnified, and he does so as a form of judgment. And it all happens because people do not know 
God. There's unrestrained wickedness. But also there is willful ignorance, verses 4 through 6. So we're moving on to our second point, willful ignorance in verses 4 through 6. Notice we see in verses 4 and 5 the deaf ears of Israel. Some of these verses are difficult. I have to say Hosea has been difficult. You can read. There's a lot of different things different commentators say, uh, but we'll, we'll do our best. Verse 4, let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. What it probably highlights is the people are a quarrelsome people, and they are a fool who is not open to rebuke. So that's probably perhaps in view here. But there's also no one who can give a rebuke because everybody's in the same boat. You see, a rebuke should come from someone who is mature and perhaps not struggling with that very thing. Do you know what I mean? But everyone's in, everyone's to blame here. Let no man contend or rebuke another. They're probably doing that. They're probably rebuking one another, probably calling one another out. There is violence and quarrelsomeness. But he's saying they should not do that. And the reason they should not do that is because no man or woman or child is guiltless. All men, all men are engaging in this quarrelsomeness. And the reason is they contend with the priest. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. They won't hear the word of God. They won't hear the rebuke from the priest. Now we're going to talk about priests in just a moment. And they were no better. But for now, just uh, just look at the flow of the argument, what he's saying. If the priests were good, they weren't listening anyway. The people weren't understanding. The people weren't wanting what the priest or what Yahweh was putting down. Sometimes there are bad priests and eager people. Sometimes there's eager priests and bad people. Sometimes they're both bad. Now, as we're going to see, both are bad here for us. They will not listen. They won't be corrected. They won't be taught. And that was... Treason, maybe not treason, but that was punishable by death uh, under the uh, under Deuteronomy, under the old covenant in Deuteronomy 17. uh, They say as much. This is probably an illusion or what he's saying. there. probably illusion. Hosea says alludes back to Deuteronomy 17, 12. Now, the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord, your God or the judge. That man shall die. If people will not listen, if there's no order in a society, what good shall be society? There's going to be anarchy in society. And so this is a problem amongst the people. They will not listen to what Yahweh has to say. They have no self-awareness. If I may say, self-awareness is a sorely lacking trait among people of God. And among everybody, actually, because maybe it's we think that our opinion matters more than it does. And we we don't ask ourselves before we insert ourselves into a conversation. Do I know enough about this conversation? Do I have an authority about this conversation? We just like to throw it in there, don't we? Sometimes awareness is important. And the people had none of it. That's because sin clouds, doesn't it? So we don't realize and recognize uh, and ponder and consider, am I, am I doing something wrong? Do I sound weird? Am I coming across this way? We're only ever concerned about ourselves that we don't have the self-awareness uh, that we need. And trust me, I, I need to grow in self-awareness as well. Let's be honest. We see everybody else's uh, lack of self-awareness. We just, 
aren't self-aware to recognize our own lack of self-awareness. And the people had no self-awareness. The priests had no self-awareness. They just contend. They fight with one another, but they don't realize they have no ground to stand upon. For your people are like those who contend with the priest, and they are going to have perpetual stumbling. They'll stumble in the day. The prophet, probably the prophet here, uh, refers to the prophets of Baal. They'll go to them, help us, but they shall stumble as well. The prophets shall stumble with the night. The people that they need help from shall also stumble. And if I may say, going back to the uh, reference to the priest, the reason priest is mentioned here, not prophet, the priests were the ordinary office under the old covenant. Prophets, extraordinary, priests, ordinary. The priests were entrusted to teach, right? They were entrusted to stand fast and hand down what has been handed to them. Did they do that? No, they did not. We'll get to that when we get to verse 7. But the punishment is they shall stumble, they shall fall, and I will destroy your mother, the Lord says. And the reason being is because of their ignorance. Verse 16. Or verse 6, sorry. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I heard a couple months ago a egregious exegetical blunder with that one. A lot of people take that one out of context. It was with respect to uh, some around food or prepping or that sort of thing. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They don't know how to prepare food. They don't know how to prepare for the coming apocalypse. That, sort of. that is not what that is talking about, is it? It's respect to worship. It's respect. It's with respect to religion. They did not honor God. And notice again, my people comes back up. Remember one of Hosea's uh, sons was named uh, my people. Uh, was one of name not my people. And we saw how there's this interplay. There'll be not my people, but then not my people will be my people again. Well, my people now are going to be destroyed for their lack of knowledge. They focused more on the Baals. Rather than Yahweh, they focus more on the luxurious life rather than Yahweh. Again, not saying we can't have nice things in this world, dear brethren, but we can't have nice things that lead us away from God. We cannot make those nice things our idols. We cannot make them and have them take us away from God most high. They rejected God. Gill says this is not to be understood of those who are the Lord's people by special grace, for they cannot be destroyed, at least with an everlasting destruction. But this is to be understood of the people of the ten tribes of Israel, who were nationally and nominally the people of God, were so by profession. They call themselves the people of God, and though they were idolaters, yet they professed to worship God and their idols. And as yet God's low emi, not my people, had not taken place upon them, he still sent his prophets among them to reprove and reform them. And they were not as yet finally rejected by him and cast out of their land. So this is a warning. This is a reminder. This is a what's going to happen if you don't do what God says. But my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. They have rejected the truth again, brethren, like we saw this morning. Learning is a benefit to the people of God, isn't it? Knowing God is vital. That is eternal life. As Jesus says in John 17, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What was their problem? No knowledge, no theology, no grounding, 
Nothing that would move from the intellect to the will. Nothing that would move or the intellect with the will to do what is right and what is good. There was none of that there. See how important knowledge is, dear brethren, who our God is, what he asks of us. What was their problem? They didn't have theology or they rejected theology and they rejected what is right and what is true. And again, I highlight this morning, we live in such an anti-intellectual age. People are always like, it's too hard. We don't want to study doctrine. We don't want to study those things. Sometimes you use big words. That's hard for us. Brethren, it's not so much that it's that people aren't able. There's a difference between intelligence and ignorance. And I think you guys are intelligent enough to be able to grow and learn in these things. Some pastors say you shouldn't use certain language in the pulpit. I disagree with them. Hopefully, if I understand it enough to maybe be able to explain it in such a way. But it's hopefully exposing people to this language more and more. And as you hear the language more and more, you can learn more and more about what it is and what it means. It's like exercise. You don't expect someone to go into the gym and bench 315, right? You have to be exposed to it over many years. The same thing is true with theology. That's why I like to use big words sometimes. It makes me look smart, for one. And then, two, it also helps us grow and learn and understand those things. Processions, missions, all that Trinitarian language. We need to learn this stuff, dear brethren. And I think it's important that we're not lazy in these areas. Reading is hard, but we must push through when we do read. Now, thankfully, again, as we saw this morning, there is the work of the Spirit God brings us great salvation. How we know God is a saving act of God. McKay says true knowledge is supremely that which is bestowed by divine enlightenment in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So knowledge is important. Knowledge is good. And knowledge is practical for us because how do we know what God likes unless we uh, know what he says in his word. And I know I just made a comment about how smart I am, but brother, when you compare pastors to other times, I'm actually not that smart. And when you compare pastors to people in the pew at other times, the people in the pew are probably smarter than me. So um, just I'll just keep reading. I'll stop digging myself uh, into that hole, but that's okay. You have rejected knowledge is the main idea. They have been they have rejected the things of God, lack of knowledge in him. Therefore, notice the punishment. God will reject them. I also will reject you from being a a priest for me. They will no longer be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, that's what Yahweh says to Israel, make you a kingdom of priests. Now, again, what happens in the new covenant, brethren? Second or first Peter chapter two, the new covenant people, the church are called a what? Priesthood of believers for a reason. The old covenant does not suffice. A new covenant is needed and is Far greater. The old covenant people shall be rejected for doing and going against what Yahweh says. And it is right that the priest, they should be rejected and no longer a priest because the priest didn't do his job. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Like mother, like child, they shall be no more. Ignorance, willful ignorance, and what willful ignorance teaches us is how blinding sin is. People reject God, not for lack of knowledge, although that certainly is mentioned there, but it's a rejection of what is true. 
You see, God has written upon the heart. God ha- or God has uh, made man in his image. Man just suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Sin brings a sinful ignorance. Sin brings a depraved amnesia to, the, to who God is. How he made man, made him good, uh, bestowed upon him and gave him and made him in his image. And man rejects God all the more. But there is some church application, both the church as a whole and God's people in general. The whole, as a whole, people want pastors who give them what they want. If that's why you came here, that's not going to happen here. You can go somewhere else. There's a million other churches, by the way. You don't have to come here, but I'd love you to be here. But there's other places you can go. They want pastors uh, who teach what they want to teach. They have itching ears, and they want the pastors to scratch that itch. That's why some pastors have massive churches, because it's for that very reason. They sell out and go away from the truth. They're very much like Israel, very much like the people of God are, uh, under the Old Covenant, how they worship the Baals for purposes, for reasons, because that's what the people perhaps wanted. Now, there is some application for the people of God. As Gill says, we can never fall away. We are in Christ. However, in our Christian walk, in our remaining corruption, God's people can backslide, can't they? And sometimes, perhaps if you're like me, you don't read as much as you should. You don't pray as much as you ought or you do something that you shouldn't. There is this reality of a cloudiness that comes upon us. That's why, again, I love the confession of faith. In Perseverance of the Saints, chapter 17, we shall never fall away. All those things are sure and true. But sometimes in the perseverance and our pressing on that we can be shaken in our foundation they shall never be able to be, uh, we can be uh, not shaken our foundation, but shaken in our faith, notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured for, uh, from them. Yet, there's all these assurances, yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation. Then in paragraph three, though they may through the temptation of Satan, and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation. Not coming to church, not reading your Bible, not praying. Fall into grievous sins, and for a time to continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt, and scandalize others and sometimes bring temporal judgments upon themselves. That can happen to the people of God, the true people of God, those who shall be kept till the end. We can fall into that, dear brethren. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. God's people can backslide. You know what the remedy is? Seek forgiveness in the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 9 Get to church and read your Bible. We can backslide, but we can also, there's also renewal and re- restoration that God does bring, but we must be watchful. Sin blinds, but sin can also cloud in the hearts and lives of God's people. But for the old covenant people, it was a willful ignorance, a willful ignorance 
but then when people do not know God, there's also increased sin. So this is our third point, increased sin, verses 7 through 10. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. Some say it could be more kids, more sins. That's true. But also could be the more food they, the more prosperity they had, the more they sinned. That happens as well, doesn't it? I mean, that was what was prophesied a lot uh, in Deuteronomy. You're going to grow fat in the land. You're going to eat too much. You're going to neglect the Lord God most high. When there's easiness, there's an ease to life. Why do you need God most high? That perhaps is what is in view here. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. And so God will turn their glory into shame. There's increase in their sin, increase in what they do. Then there's also wayward priests. Verse 8. They, the priests, eat up the sin of my people. They, the priests, set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. Again, this is not the situation where there's good priests and bad people. It's bad people, bad priests. And the idea of eat up here refers back to how uh, the, the priests could eat from the bread of the sacrifice, right? Leviticus chapter 24, they could eat from the sacrifice that the people brought. And so there is this uh, recognition here that the priests were engaging in wickedness by the ways in which they worship. They eat up the sin of my people. The people come with wicked sacrifices, tainted sacrifices, and the, pe- the priests just do what the people want and wish. This also happened in Malachi's day too. Let's just take the blemished lambs. Let's not bring the best to the Lord God most high. He's not going to know. You see, the people, there's nothing new under the sun. The people do terrible things. Exile didn't change anything, even in Malachi's day. And it's the same in Hosea's day prior to exile as well. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity like people, like priests. Brethren, again, there is application to our day as well. There are unqualified pastors, dear brethren. They're unqualified men who should not be in the pulpit. And people in general think they're religious, think they're doing what's right, but it is an empty shell, similar to what is going on here. The people were still religious. The people still went and offered sacrifices to Yahweh, but they also offered sacrifices to Baal as well. They didn't do it according to the ways Yahweh wishes, dear brethren. Again, self-awareness. This reality is true in some churches. As our confession says, as Revelation warns, some churches can degenerate into a synagogue of Satan. Brethren, I pray that never happens here. I pray that never happens in this place. Don't think it couldn't happen in this place, dear brethren, but I pray that it never happens in this place. I hope it's not true of us as a church. I hope it's not true of us individually. I hope that we have come to Christ by faith and seek to walk in the truth. Like people, like priests. And so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Increased sin, increased punishment. It's a righteous punishment. It is never going to be enough Sin is never going to be enough. And the reason for their punishment is because they have not done what Yahweh says. They have not obeyed his voice. They have not known him as they should. 
and Yahweh is going to increase. They eat, but it's not enough. Harlotry, they commit it, but sin, uh, but not increase, have no more children. It's going to cease, and it is going to stop. And what this teaches us here is how unfulfilling sin is. Sin only feeds sin, and it will never satisfy. Brethren, God has put eternity into our hearts. He has made us in his image, and people in their sinful state are trying to find that eternal void, aren't they? But they're finding in things that will not last. One day they shall be punished eternally forever, and sin only leaves one hungry. Sin only leaves one unsatisfied. Sin, as it severed our relationship with the one who sustains and keeps and who uh, is the one we long for, uh, sin clouds that. Sin suppresses that. Sin is severed that relationship with God. And so sin only ever brings longing for more. And it shall never satisfy. But there is one who does satisfy. That's why he is called the bread of life in John 6. We cannot miss that. We believe upon him by faith. That's why he talks about the living waters in John 4, where we'll never uh, be thirsty. And even in Isaiah 55, promises all those things. If you don't have money, come by and eat. If you don't have money, come and buy and have your thirst quenched. That is only in Jesus. And even though there's hard stuff in Hosea 4 that teaches us about sin, sin's essence is lawlessness, Sin's curse is all-encompassing and blinding and unfulfilling. But all this is meant to point us and cause us to ponder and consider how gracious and remarkable Christ is. Think about what Christ does in the gospel. Law-keeping. He keeps it perfectly. He keeps all the Ten Commandments in absolute perfection because you and I could not. Think about sin's curse and what we just said. Christ's accomplishment when it comes to the salvation of his people is all-encompassing, isn't it? Body and soul, enlightened, fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And it has nothing to do with us. We were once like Israel, were we not? Unrestrained sin, clouded mind, increasing in sin. Yet what did God do? He saved us. Christ dying on the cross for us and the spirit in time and space effectually calling you and I that we might have fullness and blessings and benefits forevermore in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see how despicable and all-consuming sin is, how much more should we be thankful for Jesus Christ who came into this world for what? To save sinners that we might what? Know him by faith. Well, let us pray. Lord, there are difficult passages in your word that teach us about the seriousness of sin and the difficulties and the curse that comes with it. And we know that without your amazing grace and without your plan of redemption, we would die in our, would have died in our trespasses and sins. We are thankful for the accomplishment of our Savior on Calvary's tree. Thank you for the full life that he lived as a perfect sacrifice for us. And that all the benefits that he purchased for us have been applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you the Holy Spirit has effectually called your people. The Holy Spirit gives new hearts. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts of faith and repentance. The Holy Spirit justifies and 
adopts and sanctifies and causes us to persevere. And one day we shall be glorified as well. So thank you for all that you've done for us. Help us to hate sin. Help us to run from sin. If we're struggling, if we're feeling the cloudiness, if we're going through difficulty and trial, may we not cease to come before you. May we not cease to pray to you. May we not cease to seek forgiveness and the forgiveness that we have in you. But may we always come before you because of Christ's work and how sufficient it really is for us. So we ask and pray that you would help us this night. Help us to be watchful. Help us to be on guard. Help us to have a proper understanding of what sin is. But also help us to have a blessed understanding of Christ and what he has done. So based upon Christ and what he has done, based upon the remarkable grace that we receive uh, in him, we ask and pray that you'd help us this night as we go into the world. Keep us, protect us, watch over us, make your face shine upon us, we pray. And thank you that we do know you through Christ our Lord. And we pray these things in the name of